The 2016 election will have important implications for health policy, including the future of the Affordable Care Act. Democrats want to strengthen and improve the reforms made under that law and continue to expand Medicaid, whereas Republicans generally endorse repealing the law and enacting alternative policies. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Paul Ginsburg, the Schaefer Chair at the Brookings Institution and a Professor of Health Policy at the University of Southern California. Professor Ginsburg, in terms of the Democratic agenda, Oberlander writes in a perspective article that if enrollment in the health plans offered by the ACA insurance exchanges is going to increase, there'll have to be larger subsidies and better cost-sharing protections. Do you think that's feasible from a budgetary point of view? Well, I don't think it's feasible from either a budgetary or a political point of view. You know, I think the reality is that even if Secretary Clinton has a substantial electoral victory in November, still getting legislation through the Senate is going to require some bipartisanship because even if Democrats take control of the Senate, they won't have 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. So, you know, my thinking about what might happen is going to be not so much along the lines of what Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump wants to do, but really what might pass muster in Congress and get some bipartisan supports. So you may have just answered this question, but Clinton has said that she supports creating a public option, and some Senate Democrats have said the same thing. Do you think that a government insurance plan has any chance of succeeding on the federal level or even on a state level? Well, I don't think it's very likely on a federal level, partly because even though we're discussing a public option at the moment, not in a strictly ideological fashion, which we were doing in 2009 and 2010, but also in a perspective that we have in Medicare Part D, where there was some uncertainty whether enough plans would show up to compete in that market. And now we have evidence that there are, you know, some areas of the country relatively less populated that may have only one plan. And so the public option is being considered now somewhat as a backup to foster more competition. But I think a major barrier it has at the federal level with both Republicans and some moderate Democrats is that many have long pursued the public option more as an ideological perspective. They would like to displace private insurance companies from their role, and this is why I think the public option is very unlikely federally. Now, it's quite possible, given the waiver authority that states have, that a state could pursue a public option. In fact, there was an article I just read today in Kaiser Health News about how the California Insurance Commissioner was raising that possibility. So I would imagine in a Clinton administration, such a waiver might be granted to a state like California or some other state that wanted to pursue it. Given that insurers are leaving exchanges in some areas, as you say, and given the difficulty, at least at the federal level, of a public option, do you see any other options for policymakers expanding choices for consumers? I think in the areas which have very limited competition, many of these areas before the Affordable Care Act also had very limited competition. So I think this is the best way to deal with this might be to expand the geographic boundaries of some of the areas. Maybe some of the areas are too small and get larger areas, and this might lead to a more competitive market. But you know, I think ultimately some of the shrinkage of the numbers of insurers is a reaction to the fact that there are fewer people in the individual market and in particular in the exchanges than had been projected. And part of that's because 
employers have pretty much continued offering coverage. There hasn't been any reduction in that. And part of it might also be that a lot of people without subsidies are deciding, well, why should I mess with these exchanges? I can go to a broker like I've always been going to and choose an individual plan. So I think in some of these situations where there are fewer plans in the exchanges, there might be more plans competing in the individual market in that area. It's just that these plans won't be accessible to the people who have subsidies to purchase coverage through the exchange. In a related perspective article, Walensky writes that Donald Trump and other Republicans support replacing the ACA with alternative policies, keeping insurance affordable, cutting costs. What do you think would happen directly after the ACA was repealed in that scenario? What would the transition look like from the ACA to these alternative policies? I really don't see the ACA being repealed, or repealed might be more of a packaging term. To me, I interpret what Republicans are talking about now is significant revisions in the ACA, which they may prefer to call repeal, but I'm sure that anything that was enacted would have very carefully worked out transition from what we have now to the future. I just don't see any possibility of there being a gap between the ACA and the type of plan that Republicans might come up which they consider a replacement of it. And the comment I made before about what it takes to get legislation through Congress would apply even under a Trump presidency and a Republican Senate and House. You still need 60 votes to pass legislation in the Senate. There is a reconciliation process that would allow you to do some things but not others with only a majority in the Senate. But, you know, my bottom line is that I believe that progress in addressing the ACA's problems, whether it's expansion or changes or just fixing technical problems, is going to have to be on a bipartisan basis. And we won't know until the election is over whether the state we've had for many years of the inability of both parties to come together to address some of the problems and or shortcomings in the ACA, whether getting past another presidential election will actually open up an era where these discussions are possible. You mentioned earlier that companies are not abandoning insurance for their employees, as some had predicted might happen. In another perspective article, Blumenthal suggests, in fact, that Republican voters could become more receptive to expanding health insurance a la ACA, given that some of them, many of them, may be losing good jobs and maybe losing employment-based insurance. Do you think that's likely, and how would you see that playing out? Yes, well, this is one of the most surprising and important developments during this election season, where, you know, Republicans who traditionally have perceived themselves representing relatively well-off people, are now finding that their base is not so well-off and are people very interested in government doing more to help them. And Donald Trump's surprising comment a few months ago that he wouldn't touch Medicare, I think, is a reflection of that. So, you know, the long-term trends that Blumenthal and Marone were talking about you know, may be different because of a realignment in who is voting Democratic and who is voting Republican. So I'm really glad that paper raised this issue. Finally, you've talked about the inevitable difficulties, whoever is in the White House, given that the Congress is liable to be configured differently. 
if in fact we do have a split government after November, what kinds of reforms do you think can make their way through Congress? Are there going to be compromises on both sides? What do you think will happen? Yes, I'm hoping as much as thinking there will be compromises next year. I think some of the areas are of compromise are, one, you know, having the states play a larger role, give states more flexibility in how the ACA, or whatever it's called after that, is implemented in states. I think this has already been a tool under the Obama administration to coax some additional states into expanding Medicaid, uh, you know, giving them a lot more discretion than has historically been the case. But I think, you know, giving states more authority to do things, usually under waiver, would be one area of compromise. I think there are some areas of compromise, like in, say, reinsurance, which is a permanent feature of Medicare Part D, but a temporary feature of the Affordable Care Act, whether reinsurance could actually be made a permanent part of the Affordable Care Act because I believe that risk adjustment tools need reinsurance as a backup to work better. I think risk corridors, which in a sense would, you know, limit the profits or losses for an insurer, I don't see that coming back because it has become such a flashpoint between Democrats and Republicans. And the justification for risk corridors as a permanent fact is really very weak. There was a strong justification for risk corridors as a temporary transitional step because of the fact that insurers had faced so much uncertainty about the nature and the health utilization of the people who were signing up. I also could see a lot more tightening on some of the rules that have led to people signing up for insurance, having their baby or having their knee replacements, and then becoming uninsured again. I think that this has led to some of the insurer losses and resulting higher prices on the exchange. So I think there's a lot in the way of tightening it up to reduce the magnitude of the adverse selection that's been experienced. Thank you, Professor Ginsburg.